You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. As we jump back into 1 Corinthians and finish up chapter 9 today, let's ask God for His help, not just to be hearers of His Word, but doers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You crossed the infinite chasm between a holy God and sinful people. Uh, You did it all for the joy set before You to bring us into Your eternal kingdom. Jesus, I pray we'd see today that if You went to such great lengths to reach us, to get to us, would we be moved to imitate You and overcome any barriers to reach others for You? This morning, would we see the joy set before us in that task, Lord? What an incredible privilege that you haven't just saved us into your kingdom, but sent us out as your kingdom representatives. Uh, Would we see not just the costliness of that, but the great joy of this life that you offer to us? Pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Several weeks ago, my son Jake sprained his knee playing flag football. But I was proud of my boy because he did it in a very manly way. Uh, He didn't trip over the water cooler or something. Now, his opponent was racing down the sideline, sprinting toward the end zone, and Jake saw him. He took the right angle. He dove, and he made the play to stop the touchdown at the last very moment. But as he dove, his cleat caught in the ground, and his knee bent in a weird way, and he grabbed it. And I could tell right away that, that he was hurt. He was in pain. The the injury hurt, but that's not what hurt Jake the most. What hurt was not being able to play the next week. Sadly, he had to miss the championship game, and so the following week, Jake is on the sidelines for the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl. And he had to stand there in his knee brace and could only watch. Now, his team marched to victory. It was a sweet Day And yet for Jake, I knew it was bittersweet. Because if you're an athlete, you know that feeling. It is so frustrating to be on the team, yet not contributing. To, to, to be part of the winning team, yet feel like, did I do anything to get the win? I'm going to use a lot of sports analogies today, but that's okay because Paul does in this passage, all right? So, sorry, I get to do that. Paul often compares following Jesus to an athletic competition. An elite athlete will endure brutal training, strict diet. She will incur injuries, setbacks, suffering. Why do you do that? The prize, the crown, the Super Bowl. And Paul tells us in this passage to train like an athlete for the work of ministry. That is what Paul did. He denied himself constantly, endured tremendous physical pain, social pain, emotional pain. Why? Why would he go through with all of that? Well, he tells us his animating purpose today. What's the aim of Paul's life? What's the aim of the Christian life? Paul tells us, I do it all. I suffer all for what? The sake of of the gospel. Paul says, everything I do, all of this suffering, all this self-denial, it's worth it if the gospel would progress 
through my life. He would do almost anything to get the gospel to people. Now, why? Why does Paul endure the pain? Well, it's for a prize. Paul sees incredible blessing in this, and he thought the gain was worth the pain. That's what I want to talk about today. What do we have to gain from living on mission with Jesus? I want to consider that. What is the blessing in it for us? And here is my aim, family, uh, for you today, is I want to provoke a godly discontentment in you. A godly discontentment. Sometimes discontentment is ungodly. We're supposed to be content in Christ. But sometimes discontentment is godly. Sometimes when we feel discontent, it's because we're complacent in the Christian life. And that's a holy discontentment. That's God actually prodding you into deeper growth. Here's the honest question. If you are a Christian, do you ever feel dissatisfied with your walk with Jesus? Do you ever feel bored? This is a safe place. You can be honest. You come to church, you know we're going to sing a lot of the same songs, and you're going to hear me talk about a lot of the same stuff and go a little bit over. And you talk to the same people, and you attend the same groups, and you go to the same events, and you wonder, is this it? Is there anything more? And I'm telling you, there is. There's so much more. It's going to cost you dearly, but there is so much more. And it's worth it. So today I want to talk about the gain worth the pain, the, the life that Jesus calls us to, a life not just of experiencing His blessings, but being a conduit of His blessings to the world. Let's talk about the pain of that life and then the gain of that life. Let's start with the pain. Paul embraced pain. We embrace pain. That's part of the mission. Here's the mission. Just, just you know, this is, the, this is the football part of the speech, right? The basic thing, the core thing we do as Christians, what is it? We make disciples. That's what Jesus tells all of us to do. Go into all the world and start Sunday services and start great programs. No, go and make disciples. He doesn't just say church leaders go make disciples. He says, all y'all, go, make disciples. That's the mission strategy, you going out and doing it because ultimately Sunday services don't make disciples, programs don't make disciples, disciples make disciples. Listen, I could preach the most compelling sermons in the world. We could create the most stunning worship experience. We could brew the best coffee. We already do. But by themselves, these things will not lead people to Jesus. Why? Because the gospel only advances through people. Those things alone won't do it. It only happens when all of God's people choose to re-radically reorient their lives around God's mission and then make personal, costly decisions to see the gospel advance. And it's going to be hard. As Steve Kerr said to Katie during the playoffs, it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be hard. Why is it hard? Why is pain unavoidable in following Jesus' mission? Why can't we just create the perfect strategy and tactics so that people just effortlessly come to Christ? Do you know why? 
Because who are we following? Jesus. Sunday school answer time. Come on. I know it's early. Come on. Jesus. We're following Jesus. Was it easy for Jesus? No. No, in fact, for Jesus to be a missionary and to cross the infinite chasm between heaven and earth came at unimaginable personal cost for him. And Jesus says that a servant is not greater than his master. And so if we're following King Jesus to actually see the gospel advance, there's no way to bypass pain, cost. There's a pain barrier we have to endure. And Paul understood this better than anyone. Look what he says in this passage. Verse 19, For though, Corinthians, I am free from all, I have made myself a servant, literally a slave to all, that I might win more of them. We saw in chapter 8, the Corinthians have this skewed view of the Christian life, don't they? They're obsessed with what? Their own knowledge and their own entitlements, their own Christian liberties. And, and so they think they're entitled to do all of these things because they have freedom in Christ, right? So they go into temple worship services at idolatrous temples, and they eat the food sacrificed to idols, and they eat during temple services, and they think it's fine. And we know it's fine because idols don't actually exist. That's not a big deal. So we can go in and we can participate in these temple services because we just like to eat. And, and we just want the meal. And who cares if we're participating in idol worship? It's all made up anyway. Who cares? We have the liberty to do this. Now, Paul spends three chapters correcting this problem. But instead of just saying, you morons, stop doing it, what does he do? He actually gets to the underlying issue, which is a problem with how the Corinthians think about the Christian life. And the way they think about the Christian life is this. I have rights, therefore I'm entitled to this. That's their animating principle, right? And that's creating huge problems because they're going into these temple worship services, they're having a meal, and newer members of the church are watching them do this. They're weak in the faith. Their faith hasn't firmly taken root yet. They see what's going on and they think, oh, okay, that's fine. They do it too. And what are they led back into? This life of idolatry that they were coming out of. And they're led right away from Jesus, right back into their old life. And so what's the problem? The Corinthians are thinking all about my rights, my comfort, and not the needs of what? Other people. So now Paul spends all of chapter 9 getting to the, the bottom level here, which is how should we view rights? Even if we had a legitimate right to do something, how should we view it? And Paul says, well, here's how I treat my rights as an apostle. And he goes through chapter 9 and everything he was entitled to and all of the things he gave up even though he didn't have to. And why does Paul do it? For the sake of other people. That's the attitude he wants the Corinthians to have. And now he's going on to talk about what he does to see the gospel advance. Paul says, I'm free from all. Paul is free from the expectations of other people. Paul says in Galatians 6 that when he died with Jesus, he was crucified to the world. Isn't that great? When you're a Christian, you are crucified to the world. The world's expectations of you, their standards for how you behave, all of that, it's done. It's over. Why? Because you're a slave of Christ. And because you belong to Christ, you don't belong to the world anymore. The world doesn't lay claim on you. They can't tell you what to do anymore. Only Christ does. That's Paul. And yet, how does Paul use that freedom? He uses it to make himself willingly a slave to other people, to serve their interests 
so that what? They might come to know Jesus. Who does Paul sound like? It's the Sunday school answer again, okay? Jesus, doesn't he? Because what does Paul say about Jesus in Philippians 2? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count this status with God as a thing to be grasped, as a thing to be used for his own advantage, but what does Jesus do? He makes himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, a servant to serve others. Jesus had no obligation to serve us, yet because of love, he willingly became a slave, took on a body, and died seeking our interests first. What does Paul do? That's what he does. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And Paul is radical in enduring suffering to reach people for Christ. He lays aside his interests. Paul crossed cultural barriers to do this. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might, what, win those under the law. Paul says, I became like a Jew to win Jews. That's an interesting comment, isn't it? Because what is Paul? He's a Jew. So, so time out, Paul. Okay, how can you, a Jew, become like a Jew to reach Jews? This reveals something profound about Paul's self-understanding. See, when he died in Christ, when he trusted in Christ, his identity now is Christ. That's the fundamental thing about him. That's his basic identity. And so if you go to the depth of who Paul is, it's in Christ. It's not any longer his Jewish upbringing or heritage. And so he says, even though I am a Jew, I act like a Jew now. Now, why would he do that? The only reason is because Christ is calling him to do it. Paul's cultural heritage didn't lay a claim on him. It wasn't his ultimate allegiance, and yet he would gladly live like a Jew to reach Jews. See, Paul knew Christ had fulfilled the law of Moses, that he wasn't under the law of Moses anymore, that that couldn't lay any claim on him, and yet he would gladly obey every scruple of Jewish law, the customs of the day, the traditions, even more than the Jewish law, just to what? To reach people and cause no distraction, no hindrance to the gospel. And that was painful for Paul to do. And maybe you ask, why was it painful? Paul's a cultural native. Why is it hard to reach people in your own culture? Those are the hardest people to reach. It's hardest to reach the people who are culturally proximate, isn't it? Think about the yet to believe in your own family. Is it easy to reach them? You're the most like them culturally, and yet they're the hardest to reach. And maybe you try to abide by their wishes and their expectations. You serve them as much as you can, and yet often the people in your own family, they have a lower view of you, right, than people outside. Like, you're talking, you know, why are you talking to me about Christ, right? Like, who, I know who you are. I changed your diapers, right? Like, that's, those are the hardest people to reach. That's how it was for Paul. These are the hard people for Paul to reach, and yet he will gladly live in that context to reach them. He was radical in reaching Jews. He's just as radical in reaching non-Jews. He says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Those are Gentiles. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might what? Win those outside the law. You see Paul's purpose again. It's to win. Gentiles could care less about the Mosaic law. They could care less about what they were eating. And you imagine for Paul, whose, whose cultural home is Judaism, it was uncomfortable to reach Gentiles. 
You think about Paul's upbringing. He had come to associate godliness with the foods you eat, with the table fellowship you kept, with all of these rites and ceremonies, and yet he's willing to set those aside and become uncomfortable. Have the, you know, shellfish wrapped in bacon and and associate with people during dinner tables that he would have never associated with as a Jew. And he did all of that, why? In order to win them. But you see the limiting principle for Paul here, right? He contextualized, and yet he says he was always under the law of who? Christ. He never disobeyed Christ in his desire to contextualize the gospel, and that's important for us. We will overcome any cultural barrier we can without sinning to reach people for Jesus. And that's Paul. He always lived under the reign of Christ, the law as it was fulfilled in Christ. He contextualized the gospel to make it accessible. He never altered the gospel itself. That's the balance for us. We overcome any cultural barrier, and yet the message can't be altered. Because if you change the gospel, you lose the gospel, and it's not good news anymore. So that's the pain, that tension Paul is living in of doing everything he can to remove cultural barriers while presenting the gospel that he knew could be offensive to people. Paul makes himself a slave to other cultures. He also crosses class barriers to win people. He says, to the weak, I became weak that I might what? Win the weak. You see Paul's purpose here? To win people to Christ. In chapter 1, we saw that the weak are people who are low in status. Paul says that God shows the weak things of the world, right? And there he's talking about people who are despised, who are outcast, who are marginalized, who are looked over, the unimpressive people. And the Corinthians, this would come as a rebuke to them, right? Because they're obsessed with status. They want to be the strong, the knowers, the elites. As a result, they continually overlooked the low-status people among them in the church and in the community. But, but who does Paul associate with? The weak, the nobodies. In fact, Paul sees himself as weak. He sees himself as a nobody. Remember what he said back in chapter 4? That we apostles are regarded as the scum of the earth. Isn't that a great phrase? People already see me as the scum of the earth. Paul's ministry was unimpressive. He was physically unimpressive. He was low in status. He was weak. He was fatigued. And do you know who that made him accessible to? Weak, low-status people who didn't have a lot of agency in the world or power or ability. And Paul was able to minister to them. He crossed class barriers to associate with the lowly, even though people looked down on him for being that kind of missionary. Paul crossed any barrier he could in good conscience. Here's what's even more amazing. He did it knowing that often it wouldn't work. <laughs> it wouldn't work. What does he say? I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save all. <laughs> that I might save what? Some. Some. Now, now, it's important we don't misunderstand this. Paul is not saying, I am the ultimate people pleaser. I will become anything to anyone. Anyway, that sounds like the most codependent person in the world, right? That's not what Paul is saying. Remember the context. He's talking about contextualizing the gospel. He's saying, I will remove any barrier I reasonably in good conscience can to get the gospel to people. 
I am not waiting for people to overcome their barriers to get to the gospel. I will remove the barriers. I will come to them and present the gospel so that the only stumbling block is the gospel itself. The only thing they have left to reject is Jesus. And that's it. And Paul does all of that knowing it will only save some. Because, Paul says in chapter 1, the gospel is a stumbling block. It is a stone of offense. It provokes a reaction. For some, it's an aroma to life. For some, it's the aroma of death, as he says in 2 Corinthians. But Paul's ambition was that he would put up no stumbling block. He went to amazing lengths to do this. And here's what I love about the book of Acts. We see Paul contextualizing the gospel Usually in Acts, the examples of Paul doing it, do they work? No, they don't work. Acts 21, the Jews in Jerusalem are suspicious of Paul. They think that he's not serious about keeping the law as a Jew. So what does Paul do? He takes this Nazarite vow. He puts all of these restrictions on himself just to show, hey, no, I honor the law of Moses. I'm I'm not trying to get you to stop obeying the law of Moses. He does all of it. He pays for other people to go through the vow too. And they still try to kill him. In, in Acts 16, he takes Timothy along on a missionary journey. And they want to reach Jews. And Timothy, one of his parents is Greek. And another parent is Jewish. And everybody knows it. And they're like, is Timothy Greek or Jewish? And it's this big distraction. So do you know what Paul does? He circumcises Timothy as an adult just to remove the distraction. Just so people aren't asking, okay, what's going on with Timothy? Is he Jewish? Is he Greek? What's going on? He's like, we're not going to make that a distraction. Sorry, Timothy. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Timothy, all right. I got a wonderful plan for your life, right? We're going to go to people. They're going to hate us. They're going to reject us. But first, you have to undergo a very painful surgical procedure, right? Where do I sign up? And yet, as they go from city to city, from synagogue to synagogue, they keep getting chased out by the people they're trying to reach. Jews rejected Paul. Gentiles reject Paul. You look at Acts 17. Paul goes into Athens, and he's talking to the the intelligentsia and the intellectual elite and the, the culture makers of Athens. And he preaches this brilliant sermon on Mars Hill where he draws from their poets and their philosophers and he couches the gospel in language they can understand. I mean, it's a master class in contextualizing the gospel to a new culture and most of the people laugh at him and, re- and, and reject it. But a few stick around to listen. See, here's the thing. We think in such strategic terms like Americans about this. We do this because it'll work. No, we do this because we love people. That's the motivator. Because if the motivator is, well, this is a tactic to get people to believe the gospel, guess what? A lot of people are still going to reject the gospel. And so we'll grow weary. The reason to do it, the motivator is love. That Jesus crossed all these barriers to get to me. I will cross barriers to get to people. I won't make them cross the barriers. And so even if they reject me just like they rejected Jesus, I'm okay with that because Jesus, at great personal cost, came to get me. I'll go to get you. Does that make sense? This isn't a tactics issue. It's a character issue. We're talking about the heart of a missionary here because that's what's going to sustain you, right? Not that we get a more effective strategy. We just love people because Jesus loves us. Paul makes himself a slave, a slave. He's an athlete. 
He's got a training regimen. He says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. A stronger translation would be, I pummel my body like an athlete in training, and I keep it under control. Literally, I make my body my slave. Was this easy for Paul to do? No, this is training. This is the life that he signed up for, that Jesus signed him up for, really. And he is the antithesis of the Corinthians. See, the, the Corinthians thought the good life was being ruled by your appetites, by sex and food and all of these things. And Paul says, no, 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 the good life is enslaving your body for the purposes of Christ, reaching people for Jesus. You need to get your, your life in Christ flipped around. See, Paul literally exerted himself physically. He was like an athlete. He ran a race. You know, during his life, uh, one scholar estimated that Paul walked by foot around 10,000 miles. 10,000 miles on his missionary journeys. We know he had a number of physical ailments during this time. This was hard. He was literally walking to reach people. He overcame the barriers. So here's the question we've got to ask in our day. Okay, what are the cultural barriers that keep people from coming to Jesus? We already know there's a spiritual barrier. The God of this world has blinded the unbelievers. They might not see the glory of Christ. There is a veil that only God can lift on the human heart. So we pray for that. We already know that. We know there's intellectual barriers and defeater beliefs in people's heads, and we have to learn how to answer those. But then there are just cultural barriers, customs, ways of life, and, and they are keeping people from coming to Christ. And we can't just wait for people to figure out how to overcome those barriers. We have to overcome them to get to them. That's what a missionary does. Does that make sense? Now, we'll get to this in a second. Don't look at that slide yet, okay? Um, what are the barriers? I think often we're blind to the barriers because we're too close to them. Uh, a few weeks ago, my family and I went and saw a Jesus revolution. And uh, it was really emotional for me because... Um, I feel weirdly connected to the story. Both of my parents got saved out of the Jesus movement, basically. And, and, and that's how God got a hold of them. So I kind of see my own salvation as sort of bound up in that story as well. Uh, but it's such an interesting story because, you know, if you know anything about the Jesus movement in the early 70s, it was almost derailed by a dispute over carpet. Did you know that? Uh, Chuck Smith had this church that was failing in Costa Mesa, very old-school traditional church. They had just remodeled the sanctuary. They had beautiful new carpet. And then all these hippies show up in his church in mass who want to hear about Jesus, and they would walk along the beach barefoot, and they'd get these oil deposits on their feet, and they'd walk in, and they were literally ruining the carpet as they were coming to Jesus. That was the issue. That was the cultural barrier. And, and, and so one person in Smith's congregation got up one Sunday, and before anybody could get there, he put up a huge sign that said, don't have bare feet. And Chuck got up and ripped down the sign. <laughs> and thankfully, the Jesus revolution wasn't derailed. <laughs> and hippies began gathering in mass five nights a week when there were healings and miracles and salvation, and, and the cascading effects of that, you know, led to hundreds of thousands of people coming to Jesus. Now, you look back at that, you watch the movie, and you're like, oh, those are the villains, Right? Like, oh, the traditional people who want to keep the carpet, you know, boo! 
when they get up there. Like, how, you know, and it's sort of like mystifying now, 50 years later, like, how could you make that the barrier? And here's the question I had to ask myself, like, do I know the cultural barriers now that keep people from coming to Jesus? And am I willing to tear out the carpet so they come? Do you know what they are? I had a hard time figuring that out, which made me think, what am I unwilling to do that's just cultural um, to see people come to Jesus? You know, if you went to another culture to reach people for Jesus, you'd think like this. If you went to an unreached, predominantly Muslim country, especially if you didn't grow up as a Muslim, you would learn about the culture, wouldn't you? <laughs> you'd go, oh man, what's offensive? How do I eat? How do I have table fellowship? How do I do hospitality? What are the roles of men and women? How do they view God? How do they view the sacred? You would think about all those things all the time, wouldn't you? We don't hear because we're culturally native. So how do you reach the Bay Area? It's kind of an impossible question because there's a gazillion cultures here, so it depends on the culture, right? But, but I, could, I think you could say this. Here are some things that are unique about the Bay Area. That one is a perception barrier. One's a connection barrier. And we have to overcome these, okay? First one is a perception barrier. How do people view the church? Uh, our, our denomination just sent me this study. It's gold. It was great, great data. It was this huge demographic study of the area within a five-mile radius of right here, this church, on people outside the church's view of religious institutions. I was like, well, I want to know that, right? So, so here were the, the, the big barriers, one through four, that keep people from associating with the church, which we could also say is a barrier to coming to know Jesus if we're the church and we're supposed to reach them, right? Here are the top four. Religion is too focused on money. Religious people are too judgmental. People don't trust religious leaders. They don't trust organized religion. It's fun to be a pastor. It's fun. And I know this is true. You know why? Because I'll tell people I'm a pastor. I try to hold off as long as I can, right? I try to earn as much goodwill as I can. And they're like, oh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. And you know the number one response when I, when I hear that? Oh. <laughs> they have no idea what follow-up question to ask. They're just like, I'm not touching that at all. I don't want to know anything more about that, and that's fine. I just, I just assume it at this point. Oh, right? Okay. So what does your wife do, right? That's the next question they ask. Because it's uncomfortable, and I understand why. There is a perception barrier. This is how people view Christianity. Now, a natural reaction would be defensiveness, right? Well, they shouldn't view it that way because, you know, I, they, we're great, and, you know, they're, they're just going, the media is giving them that perception, but just time out. Whether it's a right perception or a wrong perception, it's a perception. <laughs> what does that mean? They're not going to walk in here and hear me preach and get saved. In fact, for many people in the Bay Area, that thing is years downstream from what? Them meeting you in the community and having their perception of what a Christian is changed. So the first part of overcoming the cultural barrier is assuming that people are going to have a negative view of institutional religion. Assuming that you might be lumped in with that and then being okay with it. And saying, you know what, I'm going to love this person without expecting reciprocation. I'm going to build trust and I'm going to gently start spiritual conversations over time knowing that it will take time for what? The perception barrier to change. It's a patient 
process, but we have to overcome that barrier first by just not being jerks, by not being defensive, and by subduing our own instinct to just immediately defend everything. Say, well, why do you feel that way? What's your experience? What, what, what is it that's off-putting? Does that make sense? That's a barrier we have to overcome. The second one is a connection barrier. Not only do people have a negative perception of institutional religion, Christianity included in that, they have a connection barrier. The connection barrier is this. People are busy and people are lonely. And so just making time for people is hard because we don't have a lot of natural rhythms of life to see people. It's even harder now with remote work, right? You have these very bifurcated points of life that I'm kind of on this screen here and this screen here, and I take my kids here, and I do this thing here. And, and it's funny, the, the study that I was reading, the number one recommendation for churches, they said, what program should we have to reach the community? You know what they said? It wasn't a program. They said people need warm and friendly relationships. Warm and friendly relationships were number one on the list. Here's what that means, family. If you're going to reach the Bay Area, it's not about having a mission strategy. You are the mission strategy. You are. And what it means practically is I have to make the costly decision to take the next step in these social relationships. I have to invite them over for dinner even if they reject it even if they say no. I, I've got to work to be the hub in my neighborhood, even though I don't particularly like my neighbors right now. <laughs> I have to be the one willing with coworkers to linger and have conversations and, and, and try to find time. I have to find some way of initiating. Don't have to do everything, but start with a few people and just find what is the discipline, training like an athlete, right? Training like an athlete. I train like an athlete on Sundays at the flag football game at Castro Valley High. There's literally a track. It's great. I'm running the race. I'm running the race because there's four football games going on at the same time, and there's probably 50 people I know at the community in those games, just from different people connections with kids. And I'm walking around the track, talking to people, engaging people, right? And I'm talking about them because none of them care what I do here all week, right, at all. Talking about them, their interests, asking them questions, and I'm doing it. Why? Because this is discipline. This is costly. This is the regimen. I'm not expecting them to be interested in my life yet. Yet. Because I haven't earned the credibility. Right? Yet. And that's how we have to think about it in our head. It's a yet. They're not non-believers. They're the yet to believe. Be optimists about it. It's just not yet. They just haven't come home yet. Be optimistic. So... Perception barriers, connection barriers. This is going to be costly. Amen? It's going to be costly. So why is it worth it? Why is it worth it to do this? Paul thought it was worth it, didn't he? He thought it was very worth it. Here's why it's worth it. I remember Francis Chan giving this illustration years ago, and I find it really helpful. Imagine showing up to a sporting event two football teams. Everyone's cheering. The game is about to start. And the team goes into its huddle. And the crowd begins to roar in anticipation. And then the, the team disperses and goes back to the sidelines. And you wait around. And then the team comes back into the huddle again. Everybody's getting ready. And then they go back to the sidelines. How long would that be an enjoyable experience? 
Here's the problem with not participating in God's mission as Christians. You are part of a team. And the fun part about being on a team is what? Running a play. Do you need the huddle? Yes. Do you need the training? Yes. Do you need to gather? Yes. That's not the play. (laughs) If you're frustrated in the Christian life, if you're like, why is this so boring? It's because you've been huddling for 30 years and you've never run a play. (laughs) That's why you feel dissatisfied. You're like, what did I sign up for? You didn't sign up to be a huddler. You signed up to play football. The fun is running the play. Will it hurt? Of course it will. It's football. Of course it will. It's making disciples. Run a play. Because then all of this makes sense. Oh, I need to go to the church so I get trained to go out and make disciples. I I need to be in Christian community because it's hard to make disciples. And I need the encouragement of my brothers and sisters to keep doing this. Everything in the Christian life makes sense when you're on mission. Everything in the Christian life gets boring when you're not on mission. Because you can only hear me yell at you about this so many sermons and share so many problems in a small group and focus so much on how to make our church just a little bit better, hoping that revival will break out, right? If I preach a little better or the worship gets a little better, right? Before you go, maybe there's something more. Yes, there's something more is that God's Spirit lives in you to reach the people around you. And God intention is not for you to reach people by bringing them here for me to talk to them. That's part of it. The big part is Christ in you, working to bear fruit in their life. Let me tell you, there's nothing more fun than that. If I could, I would do that all the time. It is scary, but it makes everything in the Christian life meaningful. Because when you're trying to reach people, you know what? They have good questions really good questions. And then you're like, oh man, I really need to study the Bible now. (laughs) Now I really need to know what I think because they've got good questions. And you're going to feel rejection or put off. So I mean, I really need my brothers and sisters in Christ. I need their encouragement. Everything in the Christian life makes sense when your life is oriented toward mission. Everything gets boring and stale when it's not. This is the gain. What does Paul say? I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Why? That I might share with them in its blessings. Here's what Paul is saying. That when he shares the gospel, he participates in the gospel. What does that mean? That's a weird thing, right? Don't we already share in the blessings of the gospel as Christians? Like, just becoming a Christian, don't we receive all these blessings, justification and sanctification and eternal life? And Don't we already have that? Yes. Here's what Paul is saying you will not experience the fullness of what you have in Christ until you share it with other people. You don't experience the joy of following Jesus until you follow Jesus into the world to make other followers of Jesus. You don't know how great your salvation is until that salvation moves you into the world to see other people saved. So you can experience the blessings of the Christian life in part by believing the gospel. But Jesus has so much more for you. So much more, which is making you a conduit of the gospel to others. The implication is this, that you will not experience the fullness of life in Christ until you get on mission. That's why I want to be on mission. I don't want to miss out. 
on what God has for me. See, that was Jesus' joy in life. It was fulfilling his Father's mission. Remember what he says in John 4? Jesus said to them, my food is to do what? The will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What got Jesus up in the morning? The sense that he was seeking and saving the lost and fulfilling his Father's mission. What will get us up in the morning? Knowing that Almighty God wants to work through us to fulfill his mission of seeking and saving the lost. That's the motivator. And here's the thing. There is unspeakable joy in living that way. Jesus is out for our joy. Do you know that? He's not out to just make your life painful and hard. He's out for your joy. What does he say? If you keep my commandments, family, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be what? Full. Who here wants fullness of joy? <laughs> yes, sign me up, right? Fullness of joy? Yes, right? You could just market that, right? Fullness of joy. That's what everyone wants. How do you get it? Well, Jesus says in John 15, you abide in him, and then do you know what he does through you? He bears fruit. And the fruit is other disciples. How do you experience the fullness of Jesus' joy? You obey Jesus, you follow him into the world, and he works through you to bring other people into the vine and so that they can have life in him, bear fruit in him. That's where the good life is. That's a good motivation, isn't it? See, I'm, I'm tethered to Jesus in a three-legged race. That's the Christian life, right? I'm in union with him. We're walking together. And do you know where Jesus is always walking in my life? Toward the lost, toward the yet to believe. That's where he's trying to lead me as I abide in him. And if I'm not walking toward him, uh, you've seen that three-legged race, right? People don't get their legs synced up, just, right? It's really frustrating. That's a frustrating place to be in the Christian life where Jesus is leading you into the mission. You want to be in the huddle all the time and just feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. You're gonna be frustrated because he wants to get you out in the world because that's where he's leading you. That's the point. That's a better motivation. That's a better motivation than guilt. Oh, it's an evangelism talk, right? I better be a good Christian. Great, go be a good Christian and you'll do it till the guilt goes away, then you lose your motivation, right? It's not a good motivation. It's a better motivation than affirmation. Oh, I need to be seen as a good Christian. That's why I need to do this, right? It's hard to preach on evangelism because every time I do, I'm like, God, help me to save someone this week, right? So I have a good illustration so people can be impressed with me, right? That, that's not a good motivation. Just the affirmation of others. Anxiety is a terrible motivation. God needs me. If I don't do it, God's plan will be thwarted, right? Good luck. Good luck with that one. If you think it all depends on you, you know, if I don't get the gospel out, God's mission will fail. God doesn't need you. God just will send rocks to cry out or dreams or whatever. God just has all these ways. God's not missing out on fulfilling his mission. You're missing out on the joy of living in it. That's why some of you guys are starving because you're filled with the things of the world, but you're still spiritually hungry. And it's because you're not seeing God work powerfully in your life. And the reason you're not is because you're not taking risks to live missionally because the only time you see God show up is when you really need him to show up. And believe me, if you live this way, you're going to need him to show up. Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to talk about in this conversation, but unless you do something, it's going to go bad. That's where you see God 
show up. There's rewards now. There's rewards in eternity for living this way. Paul goes on, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize so, that you, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, we'll talk more about what this means for the Christian life and what does it mean to persevere and can we fall away and all those questions. Don't focus on that right now. Just focus on this image, denying yourself for the imperishable prize, the prize. You have to have the finish line in mind to live this way, to motivate you, right? I'm not working out without a finish line. (laughs) I'm not exerting myself unless I know there's a goal ahead of me. The Corinthians understood this because they had the Isthmian Games every two years, one of the biggest sporting competitions in the world, and they knew what it was for people to compete and win prizes. And do you know what they won? A perishable crown. Do you know what the crown was made of in the Isthmian Games? Celery. (laughs) Celery. Not even like eating celery. That's the crown you got the celery crown for all of this competition. And you got the glory and the fame and it perished as quick as celery. And we laugh, but, but the things that we strive for outside of Christ, that's the celery crown, right? That thing is going to perish. It's not going to satisfy you. The eternal prize will. What is the prize that we get for living this way? Well, what does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians about the crown he was looking for? He talks about the people he's reached for Jesus, and he says, what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not who? You. You are our glory and joy. What is Paul saying? That on the day Jesus returns, the thing that I will glory in are the people that Jesus led to Christ through me. And my temporary suffering leads to eternal blessing for them. That's a good reward, isn't it? To say that Jesus could use me in time to impact eternity. And the blessings are eternal. That's a better reward. So so as we're wrapping up here, um, I'd encourage you to do this. For those of you, you, if you're yet to believe, I'm so glad you're here, you can just check out at this point, go check, you know, be on your phone or something, that's fine. Uh, But for those of you who believe and are here, who is the person yet to believe in your life who is closest to you geographically and closest to you emotionally? Who is the one in your life where they are around you, you see them all the time, and they are near and dear to your heart? Write that person down. Take your phone out. You can write them down. Write it down on a piece of paper. Write that person you want to reach. And now here's the thought experiment. I want you to think in a year from now, March 2024, they're sitting with you in your community group. And they're brand new to the faith. And they're like, I don't even know what I'm doing here, but I know I've met Jesus and I need to learn more about Scripture. And would you help me and teach me? Imagine that person that you love the most sitting next to you in a Bible study. Okay? What would you give up over the next year to see that happen? 
As a community group, talk about that question. How would we reorient everything we do to see that one person reached? Would that be worth it? It, it, it's worth it giving up every comfort to see the joy. Heaven rejoices when one sinner comes home, right? Don't you want to participate in heaven's joy in the next year? I do. I'd be willing to redo everything I'm doing in my group to see that person I love the most come home to Jesus. Ask yourself that question. I had a beautiful experience this week. Um, we went to a denominational conference uh, which is not always a beautiful experience. It's actually kind of boring. But this was a beautiful one because during the conference, people from our region told three stories of people coming to know Jesus and, and how God brought them from death to life. And here's what I knew that no one else in the room knew. Two of those stories, one that happened up in Placerville, one in Oakland, Creeksiders were vitally involved in the entire process of bringing that person to the Lord. They were never mentioned. <laughs> the people that got saved end up in different churches in our district, right? We're not counting the fruit here. And yet it's just everyday Creeksiders living on mission. And that happens. That's my dream for all of you, is to have those stories you can share. Where even if we don't get to count the fruit at Creekside, right? Who cares? It's the kingdom. And, and what I don't want you to miss out on is the joy. And I'm over. I told you I was going to go over. I do every Sunday. But I'll end with this. If you are yet to believe, here's what you need to know about Christianity. Christianity is unlike every other religion in the world because every other religion in the world in some way tells you to climb a mountain to get to God. Everyone is about you seeking God, you overcoming the barriers. You have to do it. Only Christianity says God came down the mountain. Only Christianity says God overcame the barriers. Only Christianity says God took on the cost to reach you. You don't have to take the cost on to reach God. And so if you're seeking God, you have to understand God is seeking you if you are drawn to him and believe. He is not far from you. In fact, in Jesus, God became a man to live with you forever as a human being. That's how committed God is to reaching you, and then to go into the cross, dying for your sin, paying your debt, rising from the dead to bring you to live with him forever. He could not be more committed to reaching you. And so if you feel him drawing, you say yes, and you would pray a prayer like this. You would say, Lord Jesus, thank you for being the great missionary. Lord, my sin, my evil has separated me from you. Thank you for becoming a human to live the life I couldn't live, to die the death I deserve to die, to take the punishment for my sins so that I don't have to bear it. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Lord, you are seeking me. I want to be found. Come into my life. Lead me. Be my king. Help me to follow you all my days. In your name, amen.